Welcome to another episode of Iyagi-kun, a podcast about one screenwriter's three-act structure called life. Iyagi-kun is the Korean word for storyteller. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Recommend this podcast to your friends, and if you're an equal opportunist, recommend it to your enemies too. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the genre of science fiction and how it is that I write science fiction, and specifically how real science can and has inspired science reality throughout history. And with me, I have a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Rahul Patel, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself uh, before we get started. So Rahul, whenever you're ready, fire away. <laughs> Thanks, Gabe. Yeah, this is uh, it's great great to be here. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, it was quite an introduction. Well, as you know, I'm, uh, I've been doing uh, physics and astronomy for a good part of a decade now. Um, you know, we met back at FIU and I was, uh, studying physics there. Um, since then I, uh, I've been doing research in exoplanets. So that's, uh, extrasolar planets or planets outside our solar system, looking for indications of planets around other stars uh, recently, I since left academia full time, and I'm now an analyst in the DC area. But I still keep up with uh, the scientific literature, still do some background research, and and I am a sci-fi nerd. Awesome. What what sci-fi shows or books did you grow up watching or reading, or and did did these stories inspire you to get into astrophysics? Oh yeah, for sure. Science fiction was a huge part of my life. You know, to begin with, I watched a lot of Dexter's Lab uh, mm-hmm. on uh, Cartoon Network. I think uh, we're all familiar with that uh, yes. with that show. Yeah, that I I, I kind of wanted to be somewhat of a, a, a mad scientist tinkering in my basement. You know, creating new inventions. I was interested in all types of different sciences. So. Um, you know, I saw Jurassic Park, so I wanted to be a paleontologist at one point. Um, and Star Wars, really. Star Wars was one of the big, one of my big influencers. One of my big pushes to go into physics and then ultimately astronomy was, you know, I wanted to invent a lightsaber. Are you actually doing that? Is 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 that what you're working on, or you have been working on? Unfortunately, no. Uh, I think that's out of the realm of possibilities right now. Uh, what sort of requirements you'd need in order to build a lightsaber well you'd have to have Mm -hmm. something shooting plasma out of this flashlight but if it's plasma that means it's superheated how do you contain it well maybe you have magnetic fields like containing it but then what about the hilt i don't think there's any sort of material that can withstand those pressures like just going through step by step the intricacies and causalities of getting to the point of what you see in the movies. And I thought mm-hmm. that that in itself was really cool. And that also inspired me to, to, to pursue more scientific research. Sweet. When I write, and I honestly didn't really have much of an interest in science fiction when I was a kid, because actual science class for me was and still is, or still would be, I would imagine, uh, really over my head. You know, I uh, I failed biology in high school. Uh, I, I barely got through earth science and chemistry. Um, and yeah, like it, it was just one of these things where I could just never 
see myself getting motivated for it. But when, and so when I started writing, I avoided those genres or that genre Mm -hmm. of science or science fiction like the plague because I do a lot of research in my writing. I try to do research uh, with anything that I write because I want there to be in my scripts and my stories some realm of reality for the reader and for the audience to be able to relate to. Of course. And one of the things that I noticed as I got older, uh, before I really realized that I wanted to be a writer, was TV shows and movies, uh, like you said, like Star Wars, uh, or for me, it was Star Trek, that back then, when these shows were on TV, or back then when these books were being written, a lot of these concepts and these themes and the technology introduced in these stories didn't exist. It was because it was science fiction. They didn't exist. And, And then all of a sudden, they do exist. I'll give you an example. In Star Trek, the doors, the automatic doors, when they would open and close, when Star Trek first came out in the 1960s, that didn't exist. I mean, I, th- I think you're you're absolutely right. The the the, the inspiration. I think it, the inspiration goes both ways. But I mean, a lot of it. Yeah, you're right. Like in Star Trek, the the sliding doors, or even the tricorder, or even the uh, the little weird uh, Bluetooth like device that are, uh, the Uhura uh, had sticking out of her ear. You know, the communicator devices. Um, I think a lot of that has definitely inspired real world technologies. For instance, that 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 commun- the communicators themselves. I think we're somewhat of an inspiration or at least led to, uh, you know, cell phone technology. Ion drives at the time from Star Wars and Star Trek, um, you know, that's something that you'd see in, in science fiction. But now ion drives are in use, um, at least at a low power level, that propel uh, some of our spacecraft, uh, the ones that are send- that are the ones that are being sent to the outer reaches of the solar system to explore th- uh, places like Pluto um, or other uh, some of the other solar system objects. Um, so those are you know now realities. Mm-hmm. But also space exploration in general was sparked by the inset- – a lot of space exploration, at least in my mind, would, was probably sparked by the airing of these shows and you know the release of some of these movies because it piques the – uh, curiosity in those watching, right? You're 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 inspired to wonder what else is out there. You're you're motivated to want to learn more, um, and I think that's one of the bigger drivers too. And that that's led a lot of people into uh, pursuing science as a career. For instance, uh, Robert Goddard, uh, he was the scientist who built the first liquid liquid fueled rocket uh, that was launched in. But I think around 1926, he was inspired by by H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. You know, having visitors come from another world, he's like, you know, that that sealed the deal. I think there was a study recently that that showed that even you know in computer science, there's inspiration taken from science fiction to some of the, the, the aspects of real world science that's being conducted. You as a scientist, you obviously have a much greater understanding of all of these things in terms of how they work or if it's not real 
theoretically how it could work. And when I started writing my science fiction novel, it's humbling that you'd say that I that I understand any of this, but thank you very much. Well, I mean, look, you have a PhD in astrophysics. I have a master's degree in screenwriting. It just means that I'm a masochist, really. <laughs> look, writing is torturous too in its own way. Okay, don't. <laughs> I will hundred percent agree with that. As much as you hated science, I hated writing. Okay, well, it's great to have you on. <laughs> Um, no, no, but okay. But okay. So seriously, um, I, like I said, I like to do research before I would write any of my scripts, any of my story concepts. I like to do some realm or form of research so that my readers and my audience can have something to relate to something that is uniform, something that is universally understood. For science fiction, obviously, it's a lot more difficult, and you really have to do that extra stretch for that common ground, I think. Maybe it's just me because I'm not familiar with this field. What I'm getting at is, of all the research I did, of all the things that I read that inspired me to even want to try science fiction, was this book called The Martian by Andy Weir. I'm curious from a scientist's perspective, do you agree with that? First of all, why is it that you would or would not agree with that? And what do you think as a scientist constitutes good and bad science fiction? That's a, yeah, that's, that's, well, that's loaded. Um, Yeah. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. No. Yes. The Martian is a great story. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I love. I, I even love the fact that they adapted the adapted into a movie so well as uh, as well. The movie was done spectacularly well, yes. and I've I've spoken. I'm sorry, real quick. I've spoken in previous yeah. episodes about adapting films from pieces of literature are usually a dumpster fire. It really, yes, it, it can be. Uh, I really appreciated the detail that they, that Andy Weir included in the novel. And what was great that I learned afterwards was he crowdsourced the science and the engineering from real world scientists and engineers. Where he, I think he, I don't know if it was Reddit or whatever, but what you know, he asked the community for input, and he kept yes. revising and changing and updating what he wrote based on what everyone around him was, what the experts were telling him. And he was originally a computer programmer, I think. Right. You know, I, I think the Martian is one example of a different type of sci-fi story. You know, you want, you don't want sci-fi, you don't want a story to explain, to be explicit and explain every little thing they want. You want to, you know, you want to be shown um, what the world is about, how, Things are, you know, laid out so that the story of the people evolves according to the rules that are set forth in, in the world that's being built. With the Martian, what was really cool was that, you know, this was set in a time not probably not too far off from where we live when we live now. It's 
very familiar to us because it's still Earth and it's still Mars. It's in our solar system. And the story was about how Mark Watney, this bi botanist, if I remember correctly, is trying to survive. He's basically MacGyver on another planet. And in order for you to understand how someone like a MacGyver type thing person is going to survive, they have to explain to you how they're surviving. Um, and this is a rare example, I think, in my opinion, where you needed it. You needed the you needed the storyteller to explain what was going on. And I thought it was great because it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't really science fiction. Like every little thing that he was doing. Uh, for the most part, you know, he was using he was using real world physics and botany and chemistry and all that stuff to 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 tell you how he was going to survive. Um, obviously, we haven't actually grown potatoes on Mars, um, but from what I've heard, that it's you know it may actually be possible based on what he's actually based on what the character did. Yeah, no, and and you you touched up on something earlier that I'm really glad that you said. Uh, you mentioned the character. And right. one of the things that I tell my students and uh, when I'm teaching writing and one of the things I'm constantly telling myself is no matter what you have going on in the backdrop of your story, no matter what your setting or your genre, at the end of the day, the audience or your reader is going to care most about your character and what happens to them. Right. And and Andy Weir, I think, did a phenomenal job both in the book and in the movie because he co-wrote the script and was a supervisor on set. You know, he made sure to have us care about the character. What about how sci-fi or science in general can be used poorly or how it's used poorly and kind of like the negative, uh, like the opposite of what Andy Weir did for The Martian, like what would be the polar opposite of that? I mean, so I had, I, I'll be honest, I had to look online for a list of really bad sci-fi movies. And I can tell you that there's, there's great movies, great science fiction movies out there, but then there are aspects of them that get sloppy with the science. Like they just, at, certain, mm -hmm. at some, some point they just either get lazy with it or they don't take it into account. And you know, we, people notice, you know, may not be right, right after viewing it, but we notice. And then it just, for me, at least it gets to me, you know, um, yeah. for example, um, there's star Wars. Now, as mm -hmm. you know, I am a huge star Wars fan. Yes. Um, you know, I love star Wars. In fact, didn't you come out to the Imperial March at your wedding? I did. I did. I did come out to the Imperial March at my wedding. Uh, <laughs> There you have it, folks. That's the level of nerd that we, we have brought you in today's in tonight's episode of Yagi Kung. Getting back to Star Wars real quick. The bat like and this is a classic scene that you've probably heard about, heard scientists and astronomers griping about. The in Empire Strikes Back, the asteroid chase scene, where the Millennium Falcon is out trying to outmaneuver the Imperial Imperial Star Destroyers. Uh, and TIE fighters as it tries to flee away from them um, after their chase away from Hoth. And the Millennium Falcon with Han, Leia, C-3PO, and they, they encounter an asteroid field. 
and they're maneuvering this way and that to out to outmaneuver the, the asteroids that are coming into view. Tie fighters are being crushed, and you know they're doing all this crazy flying to just get out of the asteroid field. But here's the thing: you would never encounter an asteroid field like that. Asteroids are ten, hundreds, if not tens of thousands or thousands of miles away from each other most of the time. You could go through the asteroid belt in our solar system located between Mars uh, and Jupiter and not encounter a single asteroid for the most part, even though there are tens of thousands of asteroids that occupy the asteroid belt. Space is vast. Uh, so that was one thing that hit me. In the most recent trilogy, in The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. okay, they're at the end of the movie. I imagine I'm allowed to. Yeah, man, spoil away. Okay. Just... All right. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the movie, where the Star Killer base has been Death Starred, meaning it's exploded, this Star Killer base, which is the size of a planet, has taken into itself all of the mass of a sun, a star, right? Mm-hmm. It's engulfed the star and it uses it to. A blast other planets out of existence. I can get mm-hmm. past how you would even begin to contain the mass of an entire star. Maybe it stored it in another dimension. Fine, whatever. But then it gets destroyed, and somehow the released energy turns back into a star. To me, that is utter nonsense. It would, it would just explode like any other explosion because a star stays the way it is because it has gravitational forces pulling it together while you have nuclear explosions at its core pushing it out. So you have this balance of nuclear and gravity pulling and pushing so you have an equilibrium keeping the star together. Well, when you've when apparently Starkiller Base has... And has sucked up the entire star, you've lost that balance and it explodes. I don't see how you can get an entire star to reform after that. That is one of the big things that really stuck out to me. Okay. Is there anything going on in the scientific community right now that is about to become scientific reality that was once portrayed as science fiction? That is an interesting question. I mean... I work in I used I, I used to do most of my work in the field of exoplanets and planets outside our solar system, uh, so okay. planets around that are orbit other stars, and one one of the big things right is to find a planet that uh, can sustain life, some other Earth-like planet, and that's usually a lot of the goal. I mean, we find so many, you know, we know of over four thousand other planets outside uh, um, outside our own age. Um, and there are a wide number of weird ones out there. One of the goals is to find something that's Earth-like. Um, okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that we're on the cusp of finding another Earth-like planet because we're not. But the goal, you know, we are striving toward that end at some point. You know, we are developing new new methods, and we're developing new methods to search for to search stars um, that may harbor uh, Earth-like planets or uh, planets at least that are terrestrial in nature. So 
have a solid surface and then look for the planets that may that may inhabit the Goldilocks zone. So the place around right. the star where habitable conditions are, you know, are there where you, you know, liquid water, a good atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, or do you believe that at some point in the future, maybe not our lifetime, but maybe the lifetime of our children or even our grandchildren, that humans will live somewhere other than earth, not just visit, but live on somewhere other than earth. I get this question a lot. I don't want to make it sound like it's impossible because I, I really believe that that's, that's something that humanity should strive for, you know, not to be stuck on just a single planet. So yeah, I, I would like to, I do believe that we have the capability to expand out past our own little corner of the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to take a significant effort by all of humanity to do so. I mean, right. you know, you need, you're going to need a lot of capital. You're going to need a lot of willpower. You're going to need a lot of science and engineering to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, you're going to need a lot of human power to do that. So right. it's going to be a massive undertaking, not to mention, you know, until or if we ever obtain a way to travel amongst the stars, which I don't see how that's going to happen anytime soon by light speed travel or near light speed travel or, you know, some sort of science fiction, -y, you know, really quick way. You know, the idea is to have to build generational ships where you have multiple right. generations surviving before you, you know, or living and surviving in space as they travel to the next star system. That's also a huge undertaking. Um, right. But I, I, I believe in humanity and I believe that there is that, that there is that possibility. Do you think we'll make it to Mars? I think so. I think that's a, a worthwhile endeavor and it's not completely impossible either. I think there's a lot of I think there's definitely a lot of interest in going to Mars. I think that there there might be some effort in the next few in the next decade or so to push to send people to Mars. I think that's the most logical step forward after we've already explored after we've already visited the moon. Right. Um, and NASA's already NASA's already sent probes and landers and rovers multiple landers and rovers to to mars right. uh, not just nasa um, other countries such as india uh with the you know the isro has also sent a probe to to mars so you know we we've made a lot of significant we made a significant progress um towards studying the red planet and i think that's the logical next step writers are always inspired by what's going on in the world around them the first rule of writing is write what you know as a writer, you constantly should be hungry to learn more information so that you can know more. Some news stories that otherwise would have made front page, you know, first ticket item on the news has been almost swept under the rug. And one of those is this video presumably released by the Pentagon like less than a month ago about an uh, of an air force pilot oh, who yeah. was tracking down a ufo or presumably supposedly tracking down a ufo from from the writing perspective like now i'm speaking as a writer 
we look at these events in the news or we look at these events going on, whether they make it the news or not, like around history or around our surroundings, mm-hmm. and it inspires us to write and create these stories. So when you look at a story like this, and I heard your reaction that you've you've heard of this, I'm sure you've read up yes. on it or whatever. I have heard a little bit about this UFO. Okay, so first of all, do you think it's real? Do I think that it is a UFO? Yes, because it, by definition, UFO stands for unidentified flying object. They have not identified it. Hence, we don't know what it was, what it is. Okay. Um, that's my that's my first take on it. If someone so says it's a UFO, know, right? I, I I think the public's notion of assigning an identification to a UFO is, I think it, it's definitely premature. But I mean, it's based off of you know the the countless I guess Roswell stories. Um, Mm -hmm. accounts of being abducted and things like that. And Mm -hmm. I guess the definition has just changed to it's an alien. Right. But the reality is that it's a UFO. It's called that because of what it is. We don't know. But you mentioned, uh, you mentioned this one book, or I I think it's a series uh, Mm -hmm. a few times already with me. Every time, every time you talk to me about it, I get more and more intrigued. It's called the three body problem. Yes. Can you tell me and and our listeners a little bit about that series and why it is, as a scientist, why it fascinates you or why you think it's so incredible? Yeah, um, I'll try to encompass it. It's a it's it's a grand piece of work, in my opinion. Um, the Three Body Problem by Chinese author Xi Jin Lu, um, and is you know it's now translated and available to us here in the English-speaking part of the world. You know, to me, good science fiction, it's not about um, the technology, right? I mean, the technology is one part of it, but it's it's not about when it is or what, you know, what futuristic device or what sort of new scientific breakthroughs. It's about the story, and you want to use the science and aspects of fictional science to tell a story and how we react as human beings and evolve with the world and universe that's been portrayed in that story that you that you as writers now tell right Mm -hmm. um and the world of the three body problem it it is um unique in the sense that so the, the sense that it uses some real world science to explain some of the things that are going on in that world while also hitting on the fringes of some of the more exotic sciences that we know of today, like string theory, and then takes those aspects and then turns it turns it on its head and sort of creates a whole new level of science and science fiction in there to evolve the interactions and the drama and the um, conflicts that are going on. So three, the three-body problem starts in the era before the communist party took over and Mm -hmm. how the conditions at that time fostered this one scientist to um, make contact with an alien race, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we've seen in previous movies like the movie contact, Um, you know, so that's not outlandish, but the way that they made contact by 
what has it as they call it plucking the strings of the sun so to speak i thought that was very unique where they send a message to the sun the sun vibrates and it sends another message out to the rest of the universe and they get a message back and that starts creating conflict between earth and this other world but then you learn about the conditions on that world and it uses what we know as real world science to create the conditions on that world, but in a very Andy Weir or MacGyverish way, where you lay down each piece of the domino to show the causality of how that particular world has evolved and is now coming out to conflict with, with those on Earth. And the story evolves over decades and decades and centuries to show how that conflict has now changed humanity, how it's now evolved us into a different race and how we're, you know, dealing with that conflict or some impending conflict. You had mentioned string theory and I immediately, when I hear string theory, I think of big bang theory. So here's my question for you. Can science or science fiction successfully be funny? Yeah, I see no reason why you can't adapt science fiction into every other genre of uh, every other genre. You know, you have, you know, science fiction, I don't think is just limited to the exotic or the futuristic, um, you know, or the Star Warsians and Treks of the, of the world. But, you know, you have, like you said, science fiction and comedy, like uh, right. Big Bang Theory and Futurama. And they do a really good job of you know, portraying some science stuff, uh, you know, I have problems with the Big Bang Theory, but that's not here or there. Uh, but Futurama is, you know, it's hilarious, and you, they know what they're about, right? Right. They're not making an, attempt, making an attempt to be a very accurate portrayal of science, but sometimes they're very smart about it, too. Uh, there's the fifth element, right? Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be a comedic movie, and it's supposed to be a relatively serious movie, but everything in that movie science wise is over the top. Right. Right. Um, from the various creatures, from the, 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 the spaceships to the, the conflict itself, everything's over the top and you're not, you're not worried about the individual uh, or the accurateness of the science being portrayed. But just like how you can, you know, use it in comedy you know, they, they have science in uh, that's used in, in shows like CSI, right? Right. Um, and the fiction in CSI, I think I, I, I'm not an expert in criminal science. I'm not an expert as a biologist, as a chemist, or anything like that, or any of those awesome sciences. I imagine that it is accurate to a point, but the show is very popular, and it's probably because of their portrayal of the science uh, in that show, I think the fiction is probably in the amount of time it takes to conduct those investigations. Um, right. You know, like you can't get a fingerprint match within a few minutes ever, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you can, you can, and that's like a somewhat of a drama show, right? Yes. So, yeah, I think you can, I, I think you can effectively put science into comedies and any other genre, as long as you're, as long as the main focus is the human aspect, the relationships and the eventual 
the way that those those people in the story react to each other and the world around them. Before I let you go, really quick, um, I had mentioned earlier in the episode, you are helping me with not only really my first sci-fi story ever, but I've been writing it not as a screenplay, but as a novel. It's mm-hmm. my first attempt at a novel. And it's, you know, for those listening, it's called Periodic East. You can find it on my website, glrodriguez.com. I'll include a link uh, to it uh, in the details and the description of this episode. But yeah, as I said, uh, I- I'm writing this, this sci-fi novel and I was inspired to write it in part from the film's Snow, Snowpiercer meets Predator. <laughs> now that you say that out loud, it it now it's obvious. I can't unsee that. Yeah, and like that that was that was my starting point. Mm-hmm. The writing process is time consuming. It is long and arduous, and many times, oftentimes, very lonely, because I have been writing it now for about five years I've been working on it and to make it to make it even more difficult on myself I have been writing it by hand and the reason why I did that was it was kind of like a science experiment if you will because I believe that when you write something by hand as opposed to typing it out different parts of your brain are working right and because different parts of your brain are working not only just to keep the muscles in your hand going in a certain way or keep the fingers going in a certain way, but there's something deeper, I really believe this, that your creativity, when you write a story, it's going to come out different. Because when I sat down a couple of years ago, one day I sat down and took what I had so far and tried adapting it into a screenplay. And I ended up with something completely different that wasn't even mentioned or even suggested in the handwritten mm-hmm. version of the story. You, you are really helping me. I would send you a chapter or send you a portion of it and anything that involved science, yep. you would, you know, you just write me back with like, no, <laughs> and then explain <laughs> to me how it would realistically be, be plausible or going down the other path, which is just, screw it, it's science fiction, it can be as real or unrealistic as I want. I hope I was nicer than just saying no. I had to read those comments that I wrote. I mean, some, no, yes, 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 you are very, I mean, you're, you're Canadian, you're too freaking nice, okay? <laughs> you, you are a very kind man, a very loving man, and I love you dearly. Aww. You've been helping me with my novel, with my sci-fi story. And basically what what I wanted to ask or what I wanted you to tell the listeners is how is it that, you know, you've been helping me. And if someone out there who's listening to this wants to write science fiction, but is afraid to because maybe they don't know too much or enough about a particular topic, what advice would you give to them so that they don't mm-hmm. feel overwhelmed when they start doing their research? Sure. You know, the topics of science that you wanted to, or you are incorporating into your story, into your novel, um, I'm not 
I'm, I'm by no means anywhere near an expert in those, in those fields. Um, you know, some of it, you know, deals with climatology and I, I'm not a climatologist. When you have certain um, settings in your story, you need to ask how you got to that point. So, and you need to follow the trail of clues to that starting point of leading you to the setting that you're at. So for instance, in let's say Waterworld, right? The movie Waterworld mm-hmm. with, uh, yes. what is it, Costner? Kevin Costner? Kevin Costner, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The setting is they're living, you know, everyone's living on um, barges because the world's oceans have uh, ex- uh, have risen due to climate change. How would you get to that point? Well, the oceans rose. Why would the oceans rise? Well, because there are other, other forms of water that were landlocked that uh, were not previously in the ocean. Okay, well, then where did that water come from? Okay, glaciers. All right, fine. How did, that, how did the ice then turn into water to then flow into the oceans? Well, the earth uh, got hotter. Why did the earth get hotter? You, know, you go from question to question to question. You go to the next step. And you try to make sure that you're consistent in not just the physics, but then the storytelling too. And then that sort of leads you down, that sort of narrows down the scope of what you can write about. You know, you can't say that the the oceans rose. Okay, and where did they rise from? Oh, the glaciers. Well, how did the glaciers melt? Uh, someone pointed a bunch of uh, magnifying glasses at them and 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 and. And, and sort of went that way. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, obviously, that's a very exaggerated and nonsensical version of it. But you know, you you get the gist. You got to ask right. questions as you move forward. If you're going to have some sort of plot device, then you need to be consistent with it. You know, you can't use a plot device here and then not expect someone to not use it there. And if they didn't use it there, why not? You know, what was the limitation? I can understand that storytelling should be a free-flowing art, but if you're going to add science and science fiction to it, there are limitations. And I think those limitations can be good because it adds this depth of realism and it, you know, it, it, it provides a more, uh, more richness to the story. And when I help, when I, when I was doing, re, uh, working with you on your, your story, I just, I did some background research into, what events would need to occur in order for you to arrive at the setting of your storyline and figuring out from the physics, is it even possible? If you need a million magnifying glasses in order to melt all the ice caps in the world, well, that's probably not the way that the ice caps melted. Right. Can I just say, uh, and we're going to, I tried not to spoil it. I tried not to spoil your, uh, your, your story there. Can I just say that in your answer, you mentioned the terms setting, character, storyline, and plot point, which are all elements of story that are pivotal to any kind of story, any kind of genre, any kind of script, completely unsolicited. We did not really prep for this at all. So. That is where I'm going to call it. I give props to my 12th grade English teacher, Miss Estel, for that. There you go. At senior high school. I want to thank uh, my very special guest, Dr. Rahul Patel. 
uh, for joining me in Gracias, this senor. episode of Yagiku. Where, if you care to share, where can people find you on social media? Maybe potential sci-fi writers that may want to reach out to you for scientific advice, or if there's anyone from the science community listening to this that would like to get in contact with you, what's the best way to find you? I mean, Twitter is probably the best way, uh, best public way. My handle is Darth Patel. So that's D-A-R-T-H, last name P-A-T-E-L, Darth Patel. I want to thank Dr. Patel for being on with me tonight. You can reach him on Twitter at Darth Patel. You can follow me on Twitter at Grod Raven. You can also check out my website where I have the first 32 chapters of my sci-fi novel, Periodic East, along with other nerdy things. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Recommend this podcast to your friends. And if you're an equal opportunist, recommend it to your enemies too. This has been another episode of Yagi kung Thanks for listening. And remember, just keep writing.